Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Second Samuel chapter 5, and uh, I'll do a, a little bit of a review about what we've been looking at. We've been looking at the, the lives of the kings and learning lessons from Israel and the kings and their relationship with uh, one another, and I said this is an important lesson because as we study through the kings, we start seeing uh, the effect of their lives on the people around them, and for us as Christians, we are meant to be a, a light and be a witness. We have an impact on the people who are around us, our family, our friends, co-workers, and the different people. And whenever we look at the kings, we notice uh, there's kind of a, a theme through them that whenever they are uh, following God and serving God, they have a positive impact on the people around them. And whenever they are serving themselves and trying to please people and forget about God, there is a negative uh, effect, negative impact on the people that are around them. And so the people of Israel were supposed to be under God. God was leading them, but they demanded and said, we want a king like all the nations around us. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't happy with the leadership that God had. They were looking and um, saw that Samuel was old, that his children uh, weren't going to be a good replacement for them. And so they started making demands, not knowing that God already had a king chosen out. He had already laid out all of the all of the criteria, all of the rules for what the king was to be. And he had a man chosen, David, which was a man after his own heart. But the people got ahead of God. They demanded a king. And so God gave them a king after their own heart, Saul. And uh, they ended up having to pay some of the consequences for having a very fleshly, very carnal king over them. And we're going to find today that even a lot of the battles that David began fighting at the very beginning was reclaiming ground that Saul had lost during the time that he was a king. Mm -hmm. And so Israel came out with their own answers, with their solution, with their fix, and got ahead of God, made a mess, and then God came in behind with David and cleaned it up. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so we saw um, uh, Saul's relationship with God and how he tried to do it his own way and get God's approval after the fact. We saw how... Um, he became uh, jealous of David after God had rejected him and chosen David. And he spent most of his uh, time as king chasing after the man that God had chosen. Right. And he, he wasted his time there. But what we saw last week was that David, after he had been anointed to be king some 15 or 20 years earlier, finally whenever Saul and Jonathan were dead, uh, David became king of Judah. So God had promised you will become king of Israel, and whenever he finally does become king, he doesn't become king of Israel, but only one tribe of Israel. And I said, more than likely, if it was us, we would have been discouraged, we would have been disappointed because uh, we waited all this time to be king of Israel, not king of one tribe, not just king of Judah. And we would be questioning God, questioning his ability, questioning his wisdom, and saying, God, I've waited, I've waited, and I've been patient, I've been faithful, and then now I'm not even king of Israel yet, and it's been all this time. And then throughout time there is, uh, Israel makes Ishbosheth, Saul's son, king, and for six, seven years there, uh, there is tension between Judah and Israel, between David and Ishbosheth, 
And throughout that time, uh, God causes the the leader of Israel causes Ishbosheth to become weaker and weaker and weaker, and David to become stronger and stronger. Finally, Ishbosheth is dead, and David becomes king over all of Israel some 20 years after he was anointed to be king. So it was a long waiting process. And what I've pointed out over and over with this is that we are very impatient. We want things to happen yesterday or last week. And God doesn't work on our timeline. God doesn't work the way that we think that he should and in the timing that we think that he should. But his, his, um, I guess his emphasis is on the process, not the, the final product. Okay. And so it's about the journey and not just the, the finish line for God. And so throughout our lives, he puts us through a process. It takes time. But what he is doing is he is molding, he is shaping us into his image. He is transforming our lives. He's transforming our heart through a process that doesn't take ta- days or weeks, but it takes an entire lifetime. Yeah. And so we look at it and say, okay, God, why haven't you done this in my life by now? Why haven't I overcome this problem or this sin that I struggle with? Why am I still fighting this after I've been saved for years or however long? And God is just chipping away at us slowly, transforming us and changing us and fitting us for his purpose. If David would have become king back at the time that he fought Goliath, he wouldn't have been a good king. But it was all the things that he went through over that 15 or 20 year period that transformed him into the king that he became. Right. And that doesn't mean that he was perfect whenever he became king. One thing that we emphasized last week was though he finally got to the throne, that wasn't the end of it. He couldn't say, okay, finally, victory, I got here. It was still just the beginning because David still had battles to fight, both with himself and with the enemies. Mm-hmm. And there's a few enemies that he loses to. Right. And so uh, that's where we've been at in looking at David's life. And uh, I said the, the, the past few messages has been uh, David's time from exile to exaltation. He has finally been exalted. He's finally become king. And so what we're going to be looking at tonight is mostly going to be about David's um, David's spiritual life, his spiritual leadership of Israel. If you break down David's life and look at it, there are some areas that he does better in than others. Okay? Uh, David does very well spiritually. He has a heart for God. He walks with God. And he does very well spiritually. Mm-hmm. He does very well publicly. Mm-hmm. And so his relationship with other men and with kingdoms and with his military and with fighting and with diplomacy and all these things, he is extremely wise. And we keep talking about this phrase that he behaves himself wisely. Right? right? Mm-hmm. He behaves himself wisely. And so publicly, he does very good. Privately, not so well. And most of the failures that we find in David's life are private failures. Mm -hmm. And something interesting about that, and we'll get into the Bible in just a minute, but something I find interesting, the question that came to my mind is there are times that David does things and God immediately corrects him or reproves him for it, right? right? Mm -hmm. And then there's other times that God just is silent on the matter, okay? And so you look at things like um, his sin with Bathsheba. God God deals with that pretty quickly, right? Uh, whenever he is, uh, let's see, what's another example? 
Sorry, it's escaping me at the moment. I know it's right here. But, but you know, there's a few things that God immediately... Okay, whenever whenever David... It's something we're going to look at tonight. Whenever David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he does it the wrong way, God deals with that immediately, right? Whenever he's numbering his men in pride, right? He, God deals with it immediately. Whenever, whenever David multiplies wives to himself, God does nothing. Right? And so some of these failures that he has, God doesn't deal with. And so the question that I had for those was, why? And I believe the answer to that, and this is just, I don't know, a little, this is extra, I guess, just thinking about the life of David. But God is relating to David on two different levels. You've got David the king and David the son, right? And so as a king, as a leader of God's people, as a representative of God to the nation, there are some things that God has to deal more harshly with than others. Okay? Because those things, whenever he's dealing with David the king, it's dealing with his, uh, his example, his uh, impact on the nation as a whole. And not only that, God is working a bigger thing through David because through David the Messiah will come. And so whenever it's things that is going to cause the people to turn away from God or it's going to cause issues with God's plan and his program, God intervenes. Okay? And so, for instance, whenever David is mishandling the ark, whenever he is treating the things of God lightly, that's going to have an effect on all of the people's attitude toward God as his representative as almost a priest-like role to the people. Whenever David... Uh, has whenever David gets Bathsheba pregnant, God ends up taking the child in part of the uh, part of his chastisement of David, and God gives a reason for it. He says, "If this child lives, it's going to give the enemies of God means to blaspheme. It's going to give them ammunition against God." In other words, uh, if God allowed the child that was conceived. Uh, by an act of adultery, if he allowed that to that child to remain, it was going to complicate things within God's plan to bring about the Messiah, for one thing. But it was also going to allow everyone to see that David did this sin and that this person was a result of that sin, and it was going to have far-reaching uh, effect within the nation of Israel. And so God judged that, but whenever David married six, eight, ten different women, God doesn't necessarily directly confront him about that. He doesn't send Gad or Nathan the, Nathan the prophets to him and say, David, you shouldn't be doing these things. It says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, don't multiply wives to yourself. I believe that's the right chapter. He doesn't send anyone to reprove him for that because that is David more on a personal level where God allows each individual to have uh, their own free choices, their own free will, and their ability to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. God had made it plain that he wasn't to multiply wives to himself. He said it in the law. And God had made it plain that his will for them was one man, one woman, created Adam and Eve, right? But David was trying to be like the kings around him. He was trying to be like the other ones, and he thought it was okay for him being a king to have multiple wives. And then you follow through David's life and see how that worked out for him. Mm -hmm. 
And there was jealousy, there was fighting, there was all these things that took place in his life because he had these multiple wives. Right. Uh, he had one son that, and I brought this out last week, he had one son that raped uh, uh, one of his half-sisters. Mm-hmm. He had another son that killed uh, one of his sons for raping a half-sister. He had uh, one, well, he had two different sons that tried to steal the throne, mm-hmm. Absalom and Adonijah, I think tried to steal the throne from David. And so there was constant fighting and bickering and killing and all kinds of stuff that went on as a result of his polygamy. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that throughout the Bible the, it records is the um, the consequences of doing things contrary to God's plan, right. according to God's word. Okay? And so I just wanted to bring that out because there is a difference whenever God deals very abruptly and very strongly with some of his sins that's going to be uh, characterizes him as a leader over Israel and him as just an individual. Right. right? It also shows us that God holds people who are in leadership roles to a higher standard. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay, but I need to get into our passage here and what we're looking at tonight. We covered the first half of 2 Samuel last week where David became the king. He went in and conquered Jerusalem and he moved the, the capital of Israel to Jerusalem, which still the capital to this day, and he brought about a change that took place in his life um, in moving the capital and establishing the capital where Jesus would one day come, where he would go into the temple, where he would finally be crucified, and David kind of began that, and God used him to, to get that started, if you will. And uh, so that brings us down to... Uh, Verse number 13, and I kind of already covered this ahead of time before I read it. But in verse 13, it says, uh, 2 Samuel 5, 13, And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And these were the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem, Shemua and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon, Ibhar also and Elishua, and Nepheg, and Japhia, and Elishama, and Eliada, and Eliphalet. So, a bunch of different kids by a bunch of different wives. And, as I said, that ended up having its negative impacts and all. But also, it sowed the seed in his children's hearts to where whenever Solomon became king, what David did little, Solomon did much. And he ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, um, okay, I'm going to go ahead. Um, there was something else I was going to bring up from last week, but I'm not going to. I'm going to go back to that. Um, so what David did after he came to, the, to Jerusalem, after he conquered, after he was situated in the throne, he used that time to marry. Some of these marriages were to... Uh, make treaties or agreements with other nations. That was something that was common at the time. If this king married that king's daughter, then there was a connection between the kingdoms and it built up strength. So it was um, marriage diplomacy, right? Yeah. And so David did that some. Some of it was just, hey, she's good looking. Go ahead and bring her in. Um, all those kind of things. And so he had these wives. He had these children. But then we come, like I said, his private life, his personal life was a mess. Okay, but we come to his public life in verse 17, 
It says, But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it, and he went down to the hold. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Will thou deliver him deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said uh, unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David smote them there, and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me, as the breach of waters, therefore he calleth the name of that place Baal-perazim. And there they left their images, and David and his men burned them. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them, and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be, when thou hearest the sound of the going of the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself, for then thou, or then shall the Lord go out before thee, and smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord had commanded him, and smote the Philistines from Geba until thou comest to Gezer. And so this is David as king over all of Israel, going out, leading the armies, and conquering the enemies. These are the guys that he was running to at first and hiding amongst whenever Saul was there. But now, as soon as David becomes king of all Israel, they realize he is no longer our ally, he is our enemy. And so they immediately are, are making plans. As soon as David becomes king, they're making plans to come out against him and try to run over him. If you remember, Saul's final act was going against the Philistines and getting defeated. Right? That was the last thing. Saul went out and he got defeated. Now David's the king and the Philistines are saying, okay, let's go out and run over him again and get this one as well. But David does something key that Saul didn't do. David, whenever the Philistines come out, David inquires of the Lord. And this is something I pointed out over and over again, that David is constantly going and seeking God's will in every move that he makes. And so whenever the enemy is coming against him, he goes to God and he says, God, do you want me to go out and attack? If I go out against them, will we beat them? And God says, go out for doubtless I will give you victory against them. And so David goes out, gives, God gives them victory against them. They flee away from him so much that they're leaving their gods, their idols behind them. And whenever they do this, David and his men gather up the Philistines' idols and burn them, get rid of them, okay? And God has given him a victory. He has inquired of God. God gave him victory. And the Philistines left. They've reclaimed some of the ground that Saul had lost to the Philistines. So David used this victory, and he pushed them back, and he's gaining ground that the people of Israel lost under the man that they demanded. Okay, I don't know that we're, we're catching on to this completely, but Israel got their way. They got their man, and their man caused them to lose. Now, God puts his man in, a man after his own heart, one that's seeking after him, and God is allowing them to regain the territory that they lost. Okay. A good lesson for us here as Christians is there are times that we get away from God. There are times that we allow the wrong man to be in charge. Mm-hmm. You know, the old man is in the lead. We lose ground. Mm-hmm. We backslide. Yeah. But whenever we turn back to God, whenever we start seeking him and serving him, God has a way of reclaiming the ground that we lost. Mm-hmm. He has a way of fixing the things that we've messed up. 
And that is only by his mercy and his grace that that happens. God doesn't say, you messed up, sorry, it's gone forever. Uh, You're never going to recover this. You just got to suffer from here on out. Instead, God recovers that which is broken and that which is lost. And he does does this for David with the Israelites and the Philistines. Now, after David uh, wins the first battle, the Philistines come against them again. Okay, similar place. The Philistines come against them again. And what does David do? Okay, so once again, another battle. It's the same people, same place. It's like uh, almost the same situation again, right? But he still asks God's leadership in it. We could compare this to the children of Israel whenever they go in and they defeat Jericho. Yeah. Okay, they went to God and they said, okay, God, what do we do for Jericho? And God gives them a battle plan. They follow God's battle plan. They win, right? And then they go to face the next battle and they don't seek God. They go against the next place in their own pride, in their own self-will. Go against AI thinking, hey, we're going to win. And they never ask God and they get defeated, right? So David comes to God the second time and says, God, shall we go up? Shall we prevail? And God says, you will prevail, but you've got a different plan this time. Rather than going straight on, go around around behind them, like a flanking maneuver, if you're talking military tactics. Go around behind them. Whenever you hear the noise in the top of the mulberry trees, then attack them. So kind of a subtle sign. But anyway, God gives them the plan of attack, gives them the victory. They push them back, chase them for the distance here, some probably 25 kilometers chases them away and pushes them back behind the enemy lines, reclaims this area, and God gets the victory. The people of Israel get the victory. And through all of this, David is giving God the glory. David is seeking God through all of it. And this is something that David does really continually throughout his kingdom. With Saul, at first, he sought God, right? Right. And then after he got a victory or two, he says, okay, I've got it from here. I can handle this. I know how what to do. I know how this works. And he just pushed forward and he made a bunch of mistakes, right? But David, each step of the way, was seeking God's will. And he didn't say, okay, I'm King David now. Everybody's worshiping me. Everybody is praising me. Uh, I've won this victory and that victory. I know how the battles work. God, watch me beat these guys. He's still going to God each time and saying, God, What is your will? Do I fight? Do I not fight? How do I go about fighting? And God is ordering his steps each way he goes because of his dependence on God. Whenever we start feeling like we've got it figured out and we know how to do it ourselves and we quit desiring God's will and his guidance, we're in trouble. And so anyway, God gives them victory over the Philistines. And so we come to chapter 6, and interestingly, this is whenever we start talking about um, David's spiritual leadership. And something interesting in this is that David doesn't necessarily seek God's will in this matter. Okay? Okay. So chapter 6, it says, Again, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. That's a lot of people, isn't it? Yeah. 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought uh, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, 
that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to uh, Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand unto the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So God would not remove the ark of the, so David, excuse me, would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him in the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And so as we're continuing through this, um, David decides, he says, if I want to put my, my capital city here in Jerusalem, then I need the symbol of God's presence in Jerusalem as well. Okay, And so if you start studying the Ark of the Covenant, it is a golden box. It's got two poles. It's got like a statue of a cherubim or of like angel wings, cherubims on top of it. And it's decorated up very, very ornately. And it is, it is meant to symbolize God's presence. It's like God's throne amongst the people. Whenever Noah, or Noah, excuse me, when Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt and was in the wilderness, God gave the instructions for the ark, for the tabernacle, for all these instruments. He gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai and how they should build all these things. And this was going to be where God's presence came down amongst them. This was, like I said, God's symbol amongst them. Anyone remember what's in the ark? Ten Commandments. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that was in the cart with the Philistines. Oh, okay. Okay. So Aaron's rod that budded. The Ten Commandments. One more thing. Jar of man. Okay. Any idea what those three things would symbolize? <laughs> you got the, the Ten Commandments, God's Word, the rod, God's power, the manna, God's provision. Right? And so you have all three of those things in the ark that represented God's presence. So while God was amongst them, he ruled over them. He had his power. He had his word that uh, he taught them. He enlightened them. He guided them. He ruled them by. And he had the manna, which was his provision. He could give them everything that they needed. He could provide for them. They were not going to starve to death under God's care. Right? And so all of those things were amongst them. And so the ark was meant to be in the tabernacle. But in the part that we read, it was at, what's his name? Sorry, with an A. Abinadab. The ark was in Abinadab's house. How would you like to be that, have that as furniture in your house? Is that like in the spare bedroom or something? You're just cleaning. It's like, oh, i got to clean around the ark today. It's They're gathering dust. I don't know. Okay, so the ark was at Abinadab's house. Where was the tabernacle? 
He was in Shiloh. Mm-hmm. Remember, whenever it talked about Samuel, mm-hmm. go to Shiloh to the ark, or to, not to the ark, to the tabernacle. And so you had the tabernacle in one place, you had the ark in a different place. How that came to be, I have no idea. But that was the way that God designed it. But as David chose Jerusalem, we talked about last week how Jerusalem was on the border between Benjamin and Judah. It wasn't owned by either of them. It was owned by the Jebusites. And so it was a central point that no one had claim over. It was an attempt to unite the people, right? They couldn't say, hey, the capital is in our our province, our tribe, right? So it was going to be a place in the middle, didn't belong to any of the groups before, and so it was going to be something that would be central and would unify the people. And so now they're bringing the ark, which is the symbol of God's presence, into Jerusalem to unify them spiritually, make them one people under God, right? And so this is his desire. He has a good plan, but in that passage that I read, did he ever consult God and ask him what he wanted him to do? He never did. He said, surely this is God's will. It's wonderful. It's going to be diplomatic. It's going to be good for spiritual leadership. It's going to be something that I should be doing as a leader of the people to lead the people to God, right? And so he chooses to do it, but he doesn't consult God's work. And so whenever he sets his heart to do this and says, this is going to be good for the people, this is going to be pleasing to God, and I'm going to do this great thing. I have this great idea. Okay? And so he doesn't look and see how the ark is meant to be transported. If you look back in the law, it is only to be transported by who? It has to be Levites. The Levites were responsible for, for transporting uh, the ark, the tabernacle, all of the furnishings. They were the only tribe that was meant to handle the holy stuff. They were sanctified, consecrated unto God for that work. Mm-hmm. Okay? And how was the ark meant to be transported? Okay, so it had poles through it, and it was meant to be carried by the Levites. Mm-hmm. How did David transport it? On a cart. On a cart. Hey, it was a new cart, though. <laughs> yeah. So so he transported it on a, on a cart. Who else transported the ark on a cart? Why are you looking at me? Because you were on it earlier. Me? The Philistines, remember the Emirates? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, whenever the Philistines captured the ark... And God smote them with all kinds of diseases and things as a result of them taking the ark. They had the bright idea. They put it on a cart behind a cow and sent it back to Judah, right? And so David is trying to do something spiritual in a pagan way. He's not doing, he's not worshiping God in God's way. He's worshiping it in the Philistines' way. And everybody looking at it from a human perspective would say, David's bringing 3,000 men. He's got, or not 3,000, 30,000 men. He's got all these musicians. He's making this big procession. He's got a, a new cart. And I'm assuming it was probably the best of the best. The cart was probably overlaid with gold, right? Because this is, David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant and it's only got to be the best of the best, right? And so men would look at this and say, I see nothing wrong with it. David is going and showing great respect. He is doing all of these things. He's giving the very best to bring the ark in. 
except for his very best, the way that he thinks it should be done, is not according to the way that God says for it to be done. The Bible tells us that our ways are not his ways, our, our thoughts are not his thoughts, right? And so David says, hey, this is going to be wonderful. I'm going to bring this ark in. God's going to be happy with it. And as they're bringing the ark on the new cart, the oxen stumble, and this man Uzzah puts his hand forth to steady it, and only the Levites were meant to touch it. Uzzah wasn't a Levite. Mm -hmm. And he touches the ark, and you look at it, and it's like, well, he was trying to do something good. Why would God punish him? But see, what they were doing was they were serving God man's way, worshiping God men's way. If they would have been doing it God's way, that wouldn't have happened, right? And then with him reaching out and touching the ark, which symbolized God and his presence and his purity, man cannot approach God unless he is cleansed, unless he is sanctified. And so for him to do it, it was showing a disrespect unto God. And God slew him. He died. David was afraid, and instead of bringing you on to Jerusalem, they put it in the house of Obed-Edom, who, by the way, was, was a, a Levite. And so they put it in the house of Obed-Edom, and David is thinking, how am I to bring the ark in here if God slew him in this way? Mm-hmm. Now I want to step out of this for just a second and think. It seems severe for God to just strike this guy dead, Right? But if we look, there's different times that we can point to in Scripture where there is a a transition, a change, something big happening, and God allows something major like a a judgment to fall in order to get people's attention, in order for them to take things seriously, right? So you look, for instance, whenever the children of Israel came into the promised land. That is a big transition that's taking place. God's doing something new right there, right? Right. And Achan takes a wedge of gold and a goodly Babylonian garment. He digs underneath his tent. He hides underneath his tent. And he takes part of the spoil that God says, you shall not take any of it. You think, well, that was something minor. And as a result, Israel was defeated before the city of Ai, right? And then judgment was rendered against Achan and all of his family where they all died, and all of his stuff was burnt. You remember that? He yep. say, well, that was severe, but the children of Israel had to learn to obey and to, um, to obey God and take seriously the things of God. This was a foundational place. And so after that, the people learned to fear, right? right. Okay, so that was one instance. Can we think of other instances? You have Aaron and his two sons. Remember his two sons? Hophni and Phinehas, I think. Do I have the right names? Yeah. That offered up strange fire before the Lord, mm-hmm. and they were consumed by the fire? Yeah. That was Eli's sons. It was, what was, what was Aaron's two sons? When I'm sorry with me. Anyway, Hophni and Phinehas was Eli. But anyway, you have the, the two sons of Aaron, Uh, that they offered up strange fire before the Lord, and the Lord slew them right then, right? I guess Eli's two sons, they were slew by God too. But with that, that was the beginning of the uh, Aaronic priesthood, right? Mm -hmm. They were the first priest after Aaron, 
God was doing something, and the priests needed to know to take their job seriously, to not take lightly the things of God. And so whenever they crossed the line, God dealt with it quickly, severely, so that they would fear and that they would respect the things of God. And so now as they're getting ready to unify as a nation, to unify under God, to soon build the temple, right? And all of these things that David's putting in place, they need to understand how important it is to treat the things of God with respect. Right. And to not take lightly. Because David's getting ready to embark on some pretty incredible things, but David needs to regulate himself a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so whenever this happens, David is the leader, right? Mm -hmm. David is a shepherd. David cares about those that he's leading. Mm -hmm. And David sees that a failure in his leadership has cost a man his life mm -hmm. because he didn't take the things of God seriously. Right. That's going to get David's attention. Mm -hmm. And so David is going to take the things of God seriously. Mm -hmm. The people that are following David is going to take the things of God seriously. Right. And David's going to realize if I don't listen to God, if I don't follow God, it will cost people their lives. Yeah. Okay? And if we would realize we don't have as much influence as what David did, but all of us have people who are looking at us and people who are following us. And if we realize how big of a responsibility it is to have people that we are impacting, yeah. we would take it more seriously. Exactly. Because our lives do have an effect on other people. Mm -hmm. And if we look at it and say, okay, I'm having an impact, I'm having an effect on people after me. Parents on their children, uh, children on younger children, you know, exactly. uh, friends on friends, people in the community, all these different things, all these relationships, we're having an impact. If we realize that our lives have impact, we're going to take that seriously, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, uh, David is reproved for this, and it says that it's he leaves the, the, the ark in the house of Obed-Edom mm -hmm. for three months, and God blesses the house of Obed-Edom for three months. Mm -hmm. So David was afraid of the ark, but now he's seeing the blessing of the ark yeah. on Obed-Edom, and all of a sudden he says, okay, well, I need to bring the ark to Jerusalem because I want the blessings not just on Obed-Edom's house, but on my house and on my city and on my country and on my people. And so he makes a plan, but this time he goes back and he reviews the word of God and says, okay, how do I treat the ark? Mm -hmm. And this time he does it right. Okay? And he goes through and he has Levites carrying the ark uh, they go so many steps. I'm not going to read the rest of this for the sake of time. But they go so many steps, six paces, it says. And they started performing, uh, when they went six paces, verse 13, uh, they sacrificed oxen and fatlings. Mm -hmm. And so they offer up sacrifices after they begin the process of moving it. And then they continue the moving process. And it says that David is girded with a linen ephod, the king of Israel, girded with a linen ephod, and he is going before them, singing and dancing and praising God, bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and leading the people in worship and reverence of God. Mm -hmm. And so it would have been a beautiful thing to see, right? And so it went very well, and afterward he blesses the people like a priest would. Right. He blesses the people, he gives them... Uh, food, there's like a feast that goes on. He pitches a tent in Jerusalem, brings the ark into the tent, and there is a great celebration. It is a high point for the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. Okay? 
So great thing that's going on through all of this. But remember I said he does well publicly and spiritually, not so well at home. So this time he has worshiped God, God's way. He's done all things pleasing to God, but he doesn't do things pleasing to men. Okay, and we'll get into that in just a minute, but I just want to go back to this whole thing. Whenever we're serving the Lord, whenever we're uh, worshiping God, with us as a church even, we want to make sure that we're doing it God's way. We're doing it to please God and not to please men. Okay, there are plenty of, of churches and religious organizations today that are men-centered. They are trying to please men. They're trying to attract men. They're trying to entertain men. Mm-hmm. And they kind of left off the idea and the thoughts of God a long time ago. And everything is centered around what pleases men, pleases the flesh. They've got to make sure that it's entertaining, that it's exciting, that it's fun, that it's all these things. But whenever we go back to the scripture, whenever we see the people of God getting together, they get together uh, with God being the central part of it, Mm -hmm. with God's word being expounded, with the people of God being encouraged. And that's the way that we see it in the Bible. And if we start making it about uh, what's going to make everybody else happy, we're not going to make God happy. Exactly. And so with this idea of pleasing people, we come to David with the, the people of Israel. As he comes into the, as he comes into the uh, city of Jerusalem, all these things happen, the feast and the eating and all of that. And... Um, <clears throat> Everyone is dismissed. Everyone goes home, and David goes home. Mm-hmm. And who's waiting for David at home? Oh, yeah. yeah, wife number one, Michael, right? <laughs> yeah. Me tell. But anyway, but anyway, she's at home. What does that tell us about her? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, or at least not one that she wasn't the center of, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was a great celebration. There was a great time of worship for God, and she stayed at home. And she didn't. This wasn't a priority for her. This wasn't something that was important for her. And so whenever David comes home, she gets very bitter and sarcastic toward him. And she says, oh, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uh, embarrassing himself in front of everybody out there dancing like some commoner. That's basically what she says. Out there just in front of the maids and the servants and the slaves acting like a normal person when you're the king. And you find a little bit of Saul has creeped into her, or a lot of Saul, mm-hmm. because Saul was very concerned about what everybody else would think about him right. and about him being lifted up, about him being important, right. Right? about him being magnified. And she said, David, you went out there and made a fool of yourself in front of everyone. You're supposed to be the king. You're supposed to be more dignified. You, be, you should be sitting up there watching everybody else worship. And David says, no, I was... Whenever it comes before God, I'm not before everyone else. I'm not higher than everyone else. And so I will gladly make a fool of myself in front of God. I will humble myself in front of God to worship and to praise and to honor Him. But you also found that that's only her opinion. Yeah. There was a lot of people at that celebration that were happy. There were a lot of people at that celebration that was happy, 
But who has more impact on David? Who's he more concerned about? See, here's the thing with a man. He can have a hundred or two hundred or a million people that is thrilled with him, but if his family is not satisfied, is not happy with him, then the rest of those on the outside don't matter. And so whenever David comes back and his wife is nothing but sarcastic and degrading to him, that is going to be a serious thing. That is an attack of Satan. Why is it that um, Job, in Job's case, that Satan destroyed everything that he had and left his wife? Right? And so anyway, he comes home, and I believe he, li- I believe he loves this woman. Whenever he came to be the king, she had been given to another man, and this was one of the, the conditions that he made is he says, I want my wife back. Right. And then whenever he gets her, she ends up being a stumbling block. First wife yeah. that helped rescue him from her crazy dad right. right yeah and so all of these things piled up and she is discouraging them and this is this is what Satan will do is he'll bring up the ones that you are closest with to try to knock you off course this is why being equally yoked is so important right. because if she was serving God and loved God like he did. This would be a completely different story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he had a daughter of Saul to be his wife. Mm-hmm. Obviously, unequally yoked. And so anyway, um, he responds to her, and this is not a good husband and wife conversation. But anyway... Um, he responded, verse 22, I will be yet more vile than thus and will be base in mine own sight and of the main maidservants which I have spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. I, I should have read verse 21, the last half of it. It says, David said unto to Michael, it was before the Lord which chose me before thy father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, okay, you're judging me whenever your own dad couldn't hold you on the job. Right? And so that's what he's saying. That's the attitude that he has. And so he's running down Saul in a way. And he says, Which was chose before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. He says, You're offended by me, but your dad was a bigger loser. You need to be worried about that. (laughs) And so I'm not going to be ashamed to worship my God even though she was trying to shame him for worshiping God. And so anyway, the last thing we saw in verse 23 is that um, she had no children until the day of her death. The Bible does not say whether that was a judgment of God upon her and that God made her barren or that um, David just ceased being with her, that this was just the wedge that drove them apart and he says, fine then, and kind of banished her out and clung to his other wives. I don't know. Maybe this was the thing. Uh, I know that it says that he married all these women, but nothing says that it happened before this event. Mm-hmm. It may be recorded before this event, but this may have been the one that whenever she did this, that it provoked him to go to the other ones. I don't know. She was like, enough. I mean, he did have, I guess to kind of discredit that idea, he married several wives while he was in right. in yeah. Judah. Well, he's the only king over Judah. Right. Uh, and so it started and just continued it. 
Okay, so let's see. So anyway, this this was the the division between him and and his wife, and that was he got the 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 ark into Jerusalem. He was leading the people, rallying them to worship God. The the last thing, and I want to just hit this briefly before we close, was that he desires to build a tabernacle, or not a tabernacle. He desires to build a temple. He's there in his palace. He's got this beautiful house, and he looks out, and the tabernacle, or the excuse me, the no, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. I can imagine the storms are raging, it the winds are blowing, the rains are pouring down, and David looks out his window and sees that little canvas tent. He sees the little canvas tent flapping in the breeze and the storm and all of that. And he's sitting there thinking, the symbol of the presence of God is in a tent while me, just a servant of God, is in this beautiful palace. So what am I supposed to do here? And so he says, I want to build a temple. And Nathan, the prophet, there's two main prophets, Nathan and Gad. They're the ones that... uh, Compose this account. They're the ones that recorded these things. And anyway, they recorded the Chronicles, actually. So anyway, they said, um, or Nathan said, go ahead and do all that's in that heart. He says, you're on the right track. You've got a good heart. You've got a good heart for God. You're going to do something great. Go ahead and do it. And then God comes to Nathan and says, no, you spoke without me. You, you didn't ask me about this. Go and tell David he can't build me a house. Right? Mm-hmm. But God is very gracious toward David. And it's not like God just says, nope, sorry, you can't do what you want to do. God says, I've never asked for a house to be built. He appreciates David's heart for God in the matter and that God has it, or that David has this respect for God. But he says, you're not going to be the one that builds a house for me. And the reason that's given in Chronicles is because David is a man of war. He is a man of much bloodshed. And so whoever builds the tabernacle, or excuse me, not the tabernacle, the temple, is going to be associated with that God and with that temple. And God wants to be known to all the nations around. And if David, the man of battle, the man of war, the man of bloodshed, builds the temple, they're going to assume that his God is a God of bloodshed and of war and all of these things. Right? And so it's going to be much like the gods that are around them. And so what David ends up doing, or what God ends up doing, David, you're not going to. You're going to win all the battles. There's going to be peace. And your son, who's going to be a man of peace and of wisdom, is going to be the one that builds the temple. Right. Which is going to be called Solomon's Temple for generations. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be associated not with a man of war and of conquest and of defeat, but a man of wisdom and of peace. Right. Which are things that would relate to Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And so he says, you might be a man after God's own heart, after his wrath, his vengeance, his justice, all these things, but God has other attributes. Exactly. And those are the ones that he wants to be known by. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, uh, I would read through this, but we don't have time. But anyway... God gives to David through Nathan the Davidic covenant or Davidic covenant where he says you're going to have an heir. Your lineage, your household will rule forever. He's just watched Saul make a misstep and get cast aside, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so David is going to be walking gingerly saying, hey, if someone in my lineage, someone in my family turns away from God, then that's the end. And God's going to cut off my lineage, right? And God makes him a promise and says, I'm not going to do that. There won't cease to be a man of David's lineage uh, sitting on the throne of Israel, which is fulfilled in Christ. And so he says, you're going to have a posterity. You're going to have a throne. They're going to continue to reign. Um, you're going to have blessing. You're going to have favor. Uh, your son is going to be the one that builds the temple, right? And basically, out of your family, out of your lineage, is going to come the Messiah, the Christ. And so David is just awestruck because God has spoken of his lineage, of his family, for eternity future, basically. And so could you imagine God, God coming to you and just saying, your family is going to be in a great place, in a position of power and influence until the end of time. And it's going to have an impact on the entire world to the end of time. That would be that'd be awesome. It'd be insane, wouldn't it? And on top of that, something else that we often look over in this is <clears throat> that God makes him a promise in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. I'll go ahead and read verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took away from Saul, who I put away, I put away before thee. This is an amazing promise that God is making. He says, I will not punish him. I will discipline him. And there's a difference. And so he says, what I'm going to do is going to be corrective, not punitive. And so punishment means, okay, they go to jail, they go to the electric chair, they get lethal. You know, it's punishment. They have to repay or whatever. But God says, what I'm going to do for your successive generations, for the nation of Israel even, is I'm not going to treat them like a servant or a slave. I'm going to treat them like a son. And whenever they step out of line, I'm going to chasten them and bring them back to myself. I'm not going to cast them aside. I'm not going to destroy them. And this is a parallel to how he deals with us as Christians as well, that it is always corrective and not punitive. Our punishment was taken on the cross. We have Jesus paid for our sins, and so he deals with us as children, as his children. And so whenever we stray... There are consequences that come, but those consequences are always to bring us back to him or to correct our path, and that's how he deals with us. And so anyway, as we look at, at David's spiritual leadership, he leads them in bringing the, the ark back into Jerusalem, or into Jerusalem for the first time, in worshiping God and serving him. He humbles himself before the people and before God. Uh, he sees the importance of worshiping God the right way, and not incorporating pagan practices into it, right? Mm -hmm. and so he's leading him in that. And then whenever he goes to build the temple, he is showing his heart, his desire for the things of God. And God says, it was good that you wanted to worship me. It was good that you wanted to serve me. But let me lead. Let me decide. Don't. I guess what I want to get across in this point is we want to do for God. That's what David, oh, yeah. that was David's heart. I'm going to do this for God. Right. 
And God says, wait a minute, that's not the way that this works. We want to impress God. We want to do great things and show God all of the, uh, all of the wonderful things that we are able to do. And God says, no, that's, that's not how this works. God is the one leading us. God is the one that's orchestrating. God's the one that's ordaining. And he wants us more than doing things for him. He wants us to follow him, trust him, allow him to lead us. And he will do things through us. And so David, whenever he realizes that he got ahead of God, and God says, okay, it was a good thing that you wanted to do, but I'm not going to let you do it. But I'm going to let your children do it. And David worshiped God. David praised God. And there's an entire song and prayer here at the last half of chapter number seven of him giving honor and glory to God and realizing David may be king, but God reigns over all kings. And before God's sight, it's not King David. It is David, right? He doesn't come before God like Saul does and say, but I'm King Saul. He comes and he bows down. He worships and said, God is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. He says, God can do whatever he wants to do. And he doesn't fight against God and say, but God, I wanted to do it. Why can't I do it? He says, okay, good enough, God. And he submits, right? And he doesn't get mad. He doesn't throw it aside. If we continue following through David's life, which we will, we find that though he couldn't build the, the temple, he ends up buying the property that it will be built on. He ends up in all of his conquests over the enemies. He begins stockpiling all of the wealth and riches that's going to be needed to build the temple. And he uses his connections with everyone to set up Solomon so that whenever Solomon, Solomon becomes king, he has a place, he has people, he has all of the stuff, he has all of these things ready. David says, I can't build the temple, he's going to build it, but boy, I'm going to make it easy for him to build whenever it gets there. David still had his hand in it, right? So anyway, with that, do we have any anything to add to this tonight? Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we thank you so much for all that you do for us. Thank you for loving us, for taking care of us, Lord. And Lord, we do thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And Lord, I've enjoyed studying it, enjoyed teaching it, Lord. And I just pray that it be a, uh, just be a help to everyone. And I just pray, Lord, I ask you that you would be with this little church. Help us, Lord, to grow. Help us, Lord, to have a, uh, an impact into the community. But Lord, most importantly, help us, Lord, to follow you and allow you to do what only you can do. And we thank you and we do love you. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen.